0: Welcome back, everybody, to Episode 20 of No Story Left Behind. Back this week is Nina Golomy. If you listened to Episode 19, Nina was on the show to talk about her career in the Marine Corps. And I asked her to come back this week to take a little bit of a different approach with the show. This week we are talking about her clinic, Serenity Mental Health Services, and we did our best to help you understand a little bit better what therapy can do to someone that might need it, and also did our best to ask questions for people that might be looking at going to see a therapist. So without further ado, I will let her do the talking.
1: Yeah, they're they they join for, uh, you know, whatever, whatever reason. But, yeah, some of them, it's that it's that power Mm -hmm. and that that they they want and they make really shitty NCOs if they make it that far.
2: Yes. Oh, yeah. You nailed it. (laughs) Absolutely. And then, too, who knows who's coming in with a prior existing psychiatric disorder and so for this oh. very small population that i polled, it's like the fewest of the few and then only a very few answered this they did say that they suspected that they had a prior psychiatric disorder before joining and there was i think 42.9 percent believed that they did So if these people are saying that they did, there are more that are coming in. And of course, I'm sure you've met many of them. I sure have.
0: When you say that they believe they did, are you talking about the individuals that I believed I had a psychiatric issue before joining the Marine or they thought that about somebody else?
2: So this particular poll that I'm referencing that we created, the question here was, did you have a pre-existing psychiatric condition, depression, anxiety, PTSD, et cetera, prior to enlisting? And it was either no possibly or yes diagnosed and 42.9% self-reported said possibly undiagnosed but suspected
1: wow yeah i mean i knew quite a few uh, my first team leader was definitely bipolar he was a good team leader once you got uh, used to his mood changes but mm-hmm. he was definitely he was definitely bipolar i mean i i went in with depression that was like one sure. of the reasons i joined because sure. i you know dropped out of college due to depression and joined and yeah they uh they don't do a good job of screening that a lot of times because they no. you know they're just looking for warm bodies mm-hmm. and even if like they do catch it your recruiter will be like yeah don't put that on there just uh pretend Absolutely. that didn't happen yeah
0: yeah talk right. to somebody that was able to join despite having a severe TBI and the recruiter said, I'm going to go make some coffee real quick. And there's the paper shredder. I think you know what to do and Mm -hmm. so shred the paperwork and recruiter still sent him in. Grant, he's doing great now and having an awesome career, but still, I mean, if you have that kind of pressure. from That makes
1: makes people unpredictable though. I mean, you see, you see, uh, I think the most high profile case of that was, uh, Aaron Hernandez. Mm-hmm. Like that th- too many TBI, uh, you know, one can be too many, but everyone's mm-hmm. different and getting too many TBI can, can really screw a person up.
2: <laughs> Absolutely.
1: Is there, is there a vetting process in
0: place at all for that? Besides this, you know, check this box here or mm-hmm. Is it just, we need more people, so come on in?
2: I mean, they're probably going to tell you, and I'll probably get some heat from this somewhere down the line, that they do have a vetting process, but no, they don't. They do not. They do not screen them screen them appropriately, um, nor do they assist people appropriately on active duty. And I have the figures in front of me here today to just from a small sample population, there's more that we can extrapolate this from that they're not taking care of this appropriately on active duty either. Um, so, for example, the question here was, did you experience suicidal thoughts, attempts, or self-harm while on active duty? 57.1% said yes. And then, of course, let me go on to the veterans. That feels
1: low. Right. That number actually feels low.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. And then another question here, did you experience a psychiatric condition while on active duty, like depression, anxiety, PTSD, et cetera? Fifty percent said diagnosed. Another forty-two point nine percent said maybe undiagnosed. So that only means that seven percent, which is probably quite high, are saying no.
0: I mean, yeah. how do you even begin to try to address that? I mean, from if you're if you have magic wand and you're now the five-star general in charge of this.
2: I can tell you right now, Gordon, it's definitely not by having people in the unit saying, Oh, well, you're gonna go off to see the wizard to go get mental health help. That's literally what they told exactly. us.
1: Exactly. Exactly. It's it's that like they tell you that there's no stigma. You know, if you have mm-hmm. if you need help, get help. But there absolutely is a stigma. Um I mean, whether it's like, oh, you know, you're just being a bitch. You just don't want to, you just don't want to deploy again, or you're just trying to get out of work, whatever. Like there is very much a stigma there where no matter how many times they say there isn't.
2: You are absolutely correct, Steve. So right here, this question, did your unit or unit encourage its members to seek help for your mental health? 64.3% said, no, it was stigmatized. And then another said it was neither encouraged nor discouraged. So that's not positive either, though. And then 14% said yes, it was encouraged and spoken of freely. And then get this, for these, now these are female Marines, I didn't have a chance to reach out to the broader demographic. So... uh, I asked, did you ex- have you experienced symptoms of PTSD as a result of non-deployment issues? Because most said no, that they didn't experience PTSD as a result of deployment. So we went with non-deployment issues such as hazing, training, military sexual trauma, MST, et cetera. 64.3% said yes. 28.6% said no. And then 7.1% said not applicable, I didn't experience such negative non-deployment issues. But 64.3% experienced symptoms of PTSD as a a result of garrison duties. And then when we talk about encountering stigma, just a baseline of encountering stigma regarding mental health while on active duty, 85.7% said yes. And then 7.1% said declined to answer. That's it.
1: Wow, That's, <laughs> it's it's entirely unsurprising, but having having right. figures is yeah.
2: That's devastating.
1: Makes it's, makes, makes it feel more real. I mean, mm-hmm. You know, it's you know it's an issue. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah, and these are the uh, people that we're giving weapons to, and high pressure situations. And tons of responsibility, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. et cetera, and they're not getting the help that they quite obviously need.
1: Is there? A, I know. Yeah. Go ahead. I, I was say, Gordon, I know we've we've discussed this in previous shows, but that I mean that stigma extends to you know physical issues as well, which is why I see a chiropractor once a week, and the VA mm-hmm. doesn't pay for it because you know if you go to sick right. call. If you document it, then it's like, oh, you're, you're just trying to sham. But then when you go to get out, mm-hmm. they're like, you don't have any documentation. So we can't prove it was service related. So yeah. That's,
2: and then you're SOL. Yeah. And you got to yeah. pay for it out of pocket. And then you probably have other complications as a result of that. So a lot of this begins. This is a point where. I think leadership and commands can definitely apprehend this juncture. So when I was active duty, the command made everybody report the reasons as to why they were going to sick call before they went to sick call. So if anybody had anything intimate that they didn't want to disclose to the entire unit that they would have to live with and work with, then they just didn't go.
0: I've heard interviews with, with um, active and retired LEOs and they're the big you know, a uh, hurdle, I guess, uh, seems to be that they're worried if they go see seek help, professional help, that mm-hmm. they will lose their badge, they'll lose their gun, they'll lose their job. I mean, is that a fear in the military as well? That, you know, if you're going to be on deployment, but you went and saw a, a therapist, they're going to pull you off and put you in behind a desk or something like that?
2: Absolutely. And I'm sure, Steve, that you can speak more to this since you were infantry. Um, but even in, more of a, a garrison unit, such as the one that I was involved in permanently, um, there was a lot of stigma. And I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that in the military, they tell you things like you're only strong, as strong as your weakest link in the unit. So for example, if there's that pre-existing stigma regarding mental health, then that person is weak. And that means the whole unit therefore is weak.
1: Yeah, and you get you get, you get the added uh, issues, especially in you know the more male environments where it becomes ba- it's basically high school, uh, and <laughs> yeah. it's just like yeah. hyper masculine and everything's competitive and everything's mm-hmm. like I got to be the biggest, the the fastest, the baddest, mm-hmm. and it yeah so people don't want to admit that stuff because they don't want to be perceived as as being weak and mm-hmm. you know especially in the in the all-male environments i know infantry's opened up now mm-hmm. um which is which is a good thing but um it's yeah it's still prevalent everywhere else in the in in the military
2: mm-hmm. absolutely
0: well the obvious solution is just to go kill a case of beer on friday night obviously
1: <laughs> that's what a lot of people do
2: drown yourself in a bottle absolutely let's all do it together
1: right drinking culture is so huge (laughs) in the the military
2: yeah because they don't have anything else
0: Well, Nina, I welcome back to the show now that we're Thank you. At, at ten minutes deep here. Yeah,
2: thanks for <laughs> well, having me on guys. I really appreciate I, it. I,
1: no, I noticed you turned
0: it on a while ago. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I I didn't want to interrupt it and things were going well. And so last week we covered your career in the United States Marines. And huh. this week I wanted you to come back and talk about your company or your practice mm-hmm. serenity. Health Services, LLC out of Waterton, Wisconsin, and also to do our best to answer questions from the listeners and hopefully dispel some of the common myths, stereotypes, stigmas around seeking help from a therapist. So what, and you kind of, we touched on it briefly, but what inspired you to make the change, career change from the Marines and professional musician to becoming a licensed therapist?
2: (laughs) Yeah. So when I was active duty, I had a lot of people that would come up to me while I was on duty and process a lot of their struggles. And I found that to be highly rewarding and really gratifying because that was one of the arenas that I could make some positive change and increase rapport and I guess go counterculture. And I think that I wanted to continue that to some degree. And I saw a lot of, I, I think, things in the civilian world that could use improvement as well.
0: And you mentioned you took advantage of the vocational rehabilitation program during Mm -hmm. your master's. Where did you go for your undergrad and grad programs?
2: So I went to Maranatha University here in Watertown, and then I went to Liberty University for grad school because at the time when I went to grad school, there were certain requirements for LPCs. And I wasn't sure if I wanted the state reciprocity in case I wanted to move to a different state. And Wisconsin had 48 credit hours, but every other state, for the most part, had 60 credit hours that was required. So I knew that I needed to go out of Wisconsin to obtain my education.
0: And... So, you know, in Hollywood and comics and whatever the case may be, you know, it, it's always the guy laying on the couch or gal, and it right. says, Doc, I, I don't know what's going on. The walls are closing and blah, blah. Do you need just a minimum of a master's to become a licensed therapist, or do you need to plan on going into a doctoral program down the road?
2: There are different types of clinicians that can perform direct services, such as psychotherapy, such as licensed clinical social workers. So that also requires a master's level. You do need a master's level. So if you're going to be seeing somebody, make sure that they have that master's degree at least. And then, of course, there are certain doctoral individuals who are also able to provide psychotherapy. So
0: psychotherapy is different than seeing a counselor, if you will, obviously, from, you know, going through high school, they had the school counselors that nobody ever talked to, but...
2: Yeah, we, I mean, we have school counselors and oftentimes those individuals have a master's degree for school counseling in that particular demographic, but psychotherapy is conducted by licensed clinical social workers, licensed professional counselors, licensed marriage and family therapists, et cetera. So having that master's degree is where you want to go if you want to do counseling on a professional level.
0: So then after graduating, did you start working in the field right away? did you know that you wanted to run your own practice on before that or?
2: Yeah, I knew right away that I always wanted to have my own practice as soon as I chose this field. And that was that has a lot to do with a lot of the advocacy that I want to be able to do. And I didn't want to be tied down by somebody else's rules, but you start working in the field while you're in grad school, because you first have a practicum and I'm speaking from my experience as a licensed professional counselor, that track. So you have a practicum and then after your practicum is completed, then you have a thousand hour or whatever. It's, it's a lot to do your actual internship. So you're working for free for a really long time in the field.
0: <laughs> so How did you, do you intern at that point? Do you just intern with one clinic or one doctor or do you kind of, you know, so a buddy of mine, he went through old Kevin, he went to, uh, he has a doctor to chiropractics, but he had to intern at three different locations over the course of the year. Is it the same way in your field?
2: It doesn't have to be. However you need, to achieve your hours is the way that you need to go. So the states, whatever state that you're in is going to dictate what type of hours you need to have. So that's a certain amount of direct service hours, certain amount of indirect service hours involving paperwork, et cetera. So for me, I was able to fulfill all of that at one location of Family Options Counseling in Brookfield.
0: And that's when you're interning, that's when you started to hatch, You know, this is the how I want my practice to run or anything like that?
2: Absolutely, absolutely.
0: So when did you, when did you really start to be serious or begin to think seriously about
2: opening up Serenity Mental Health? In 2019, I knew that I had always wanted to have my own private practice. Um, but in 2019, I want to say around May, I was like, it's time. People are coming up from Watertown to see me in Brookfield, which is where we were at was almost by Milwaukee at that point. So people were driving an hour away. So I was like, it's time.
0: And when did you did you first open the doors then in 2019?
2: I did. I started seeing my first clients um, June June first.
0: And was the process like for you to go from the dream to the paper to actually having the brick and mortar building?
2: Now, I we conduct with Certa Scientia a. Uh, NBCC continuing credits our course on setting up your private practice and ethical regulations about this. So I wouldn't recommend anybody to do it the way that I did it, but (laughs) I was working as an LPC for this agency. And then within the period of three months, I jumped into private practice. (laughs) So I, I definitely advise people, you know, take, take your time, take at least six months, but I did it in three.
0: (laughs) Trial by fire, if you will. Yeah. So, How do you go about opening up your own practice then? I mean, do you, obviously you need a building, um, but do you have to get a business loan for that on top of, you know, you're coming out of graduation with uh, this pile of student loans Mm -hmm. and then licensing and everything else. I mean, how much red tape is there involved?
2: Well, Since it is a healthcare profession, there's going to be a lot of hoops that you have to jump through, but you don't have to have a brick and mortar practice. A lot of people, especially with COVID, started up their private practices telementally, so they have virtual practices. You can do that. I chose to do a blend. So obviously I'm here at Serenity in my office, but you start off by getting your LLC. Um, Oftentimes people consult with a lawyer. I did not open up any business loans. It can be a very a low cost field to jump into comparatively to other industries. So uh, I think that if you can do it without opening a business loan, that's probably the best.
0: And do you have any experience prior to this in the business realm? Or did you just jump right into it head first?
2: I had a different type of LLC. I was a life coach before I was a professional counselor. Um, and then I also had unlimited art studio. So that was more of like an art firm, totally different type of industry, but I did have some experience running a business.
0: And any friends, family, mentors that you could lean on during the process of getting thing open and up and running? <laughs>
2: Absolutely. So I still have this phenomenal mentor in my life today. Her name is Dr. Christina DiOrio, and she did such a great job in guiding me, and she still continues to do so. So, and then her coworker, Dr. Young, fantastic mentors for me. <laughs>
0: And Kurt, when I, I used to run my own business, too, and I made the mistake of hiring too many people too quickly, bit off mm. way more than I could chew. Did you have a plan like, OK, so I can specialize in this, but I'm going to need X number of employees to fill these other gaps. Did you have a team in mind that you wanted to work with before or just kind of slowly let things come about?
2: I slowly let things come about. And they, I guess saying slowly is kind of ironic because things happen very <laughs> rapidly, but it started off with just me. And then I added an LPC IT and then ITs are restricted to the type of demographic that they can serve. A lot of times by insurances, insurances just won't cover in training clinicians. So that's what the IT stands for. So I knew I needed a fully licensed clinician. So then we brought a fully licensed clinician onto the team and just grew from there.
0: And how do you go about finding you know, potential candidates and then interviewing the hiring process? I know that's probably the least favorite part of any business owner's day.
2: Yeah, um, the very. I, I See, I don't have a whole lot of experience with putting any applications out there on Indeed or anything like that because people just call us when you open up a brick and mortar place. You'll have clinicians calling you, and they just kind of come to you. <laughs> but I mean, you can go on an Indeed and LinkedIn and, and things like that and submit mm-hmm. those, and then go through that interview process. But things happen quite rapidly.
0: Is it still the same? You mentioned you know people doing the the online services. So I mean is there a bit of appeal with that for new employees applying to those versus having to make the the commute to work every day?
2: Yes. We actually have one of our clinicians only comes down here from the Milwaukee area one day a week. And because of COVID, she is able to see people telementally virtually most other days throughout the week.
0: And I do have a listener question. They asked, what techniques do you offer? They mentioned CBT and DBT, which means absolutely nothing to me. So you're going to mm-hmm. have to explain that. <laughs>
2: Right, and so cognitive behavioral therapy is CBT, and that's kind of one. That's one of the most basic ones that they download into you in grad school. So people often call us and they're like, "Do you know CBT?" Pretty much any clinician that you talk to should know CBT. You're analyzing your thoughts. We're analyzing different thinking errors or cognitive distortions, doing some cognitive restructuring to evaluate the underlying schemas for their workability. Um, GBT is dialectical behavioral therapy, so that helps clients understand and hold two different ideas at once, acceptance and then change. And then we help them to commit to that. Um, There's, Art therapy techniques and interventions that we use at serenity we do prepare and enrich facilitation which is a specialty program for couples that are coming in we have discernment counseling that our lmft or like fully licensed marriage and family therapist does we have the alternatives to sexual assault program and the connect program my favorite personally is brain spotting so we do a lot of different things here
0: What's brain spotting?
2: Brain spotting is based on the premise that where you look impacts how you feel. So for example, if I prompt you right here today, what is your most favorite childhood memory? <laughs> okay. So Gordon, I just saw you. You
0: looked, <laughs> yeah, look you looked up. Right. Ford so
2: mountain. this, this particular modality, much like EMDR is helping, to achieve a higher degree of regulation. So it's very useful in trauma disorders. And so, for example, with the prefrontal cortex that's based off, this this area here is all of our executive functioning, higher order thinking. But the problem that CBT cannot touch is because this is a highly granularly packed layer of neurons. So the information flow is more restricted. So when you enter into the realm of trauma disorders, CBT is going to fall short because a lot of that is subcortical processing in the limbic system. So brain spotting can access not just the prefrontal cortex, but also the subcortical regions via the ocular cardiac reflex like I just demonstrated.
0: I understood most of that. (laughs) (laughs) I I, you know, I sell paint for a living. So this has gone a little beyond my pay grade. <laughs> so what do you mean when I, so I look forward and up, what, yes. does that, what does that tell you?
2: Yes. So it's not that that has a significant meaning to me as a clinician, but we work with that. So for example, the clinician will use a pointer and I have this pointer here <laughs> and we would find an activation, Spot via whatever issue that you bring in. And it doesn't have to be something traumatic. It could be anything stressful that you're dealing with. So for example, if a client is saying that they're struggling with issues at work, we would ask them, to rate that on a subjective unit of distress on scale one to 10, with 10 being the most distressing. And so they would say, oh, this is a seven. And so then we would prompt them to uh, feel that location of the seven in their body. So actually brain spotting is a somatic focused therapy, which helps promote neurogenesis this way. And then we would say, for example, if the spot was up here, we would have them process up here. And then we would give them prompts for somatic experiencing, keep on checking in with your body, maintain curiosity. And so there's lots of different ways to conduct brain spotting, but it's been incredibly impactful for my practice, completely transformed it.
0: And so, you know, of course, not to beat the dead horse, but COVID caught everybody off guard. Mm-hmm. And and we're you've said you've started to adapt into going online. I mean, are you still able to do the same thing? You know, over a Zoom call like this, is it a? Do you think it's as a as effective versus being in person?
2: Absolutely and i was skeptical of that at first but my training because when covid hit i started my brain spotting training then all online so both of the trainings that i took phase 1 and phase 2 were actually online so that was my only initial experience but then when i started to take it in person we saw phenomenal results with both modalities
0: and do you see this becoming the new normal with the with your field
2: yeah, I do. I think that there are a lot of barriers for insurance companies to remit for telemental services, and we're going to continue to encounter that. But this is definitely something that's not going away. And we're probably going to have additional pandemics in the future. So this is something that we're going to have to solidify as a treatment modality via virtual uh, video.
0: And I've, I've seen advertisements for some companies out there, and they're even doing text conversations. I mean, it mm-hmm. seems... Seems kind of, I don't know, I'm old-fashioned, prefer the face-to-face, and that's nature of my job as well, but I don't see how that could be effective. Again, being uneducated caveman. Are you are you strange.
1: talking specifically for, like, therapy, Gordon? Yeah, yeah, talking- there's,
0: uh, not to give them a free advertising, but the betterhelp.com.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. The, so you can schedule your virtual calls once a week or whatever their timetable is, but then they also um, talk, I've heard one guy talk about he context as therapist or a therapist through them, which seems uh, maybe it's just for a short conversation, of course, but it seems kind of strange in my opinion.
2: Mm. Yeah. So frequently, obviously the primary modality would either be face-to-face virtually or in person, but I like to supplement my therapy with being able to message my clients and they frequently message me through a secure portal, much like what you're speaking of here, but having that as the single, only one-dimensional type of therapy that they're receiving, I think it's naturally going to be limited because a lot of therapy is going to be based on the dual attunement framework of the clinician and the client working together. You can see that person and you can hear their voice. So much nuance is lost in text.
0: And so if I'm at that point where I think I might need to see a therapist, I mean, where should I start? I mean, do I just hop on Google and throw a dart at the screen and see where it lands or (laughs) is there a better way to kind of narrow it down?
2: I think that there are some specialty search engines and, forums that you can reach out to people based on whatever issue that you're facing or the type of therapy that you know that you want. And one of those is psychology today. There's therapy done. There are a lot of different places like this that have a full directory full directory of different clinicians that you can search from.
0: And for example, if Steve were to come to me and he says, Hey man, I think you got to go talk to somebody. And I tell him to go pound sand. You know, I don't need help. I'm fine. Is there anything he can do to try to help? Or is there resources that he can look to, to help approach the conversation from a different angle, maybe den the blow a little bit?
2: Mm. I think that when you encounter that juncture, when the person that you care about is pushing back that strongly, it's probably best to leave it alone for a little bit, actually, because we definitely don't want to make them feel shamed because we have to understand where that pushback is coming from. So if that's coming from a place of stigma or shame, then perhaps you could take that in that different route, depending on the person, if you know them well, that if you go get help personally, you can speak to your experiences from it, break down that stigma first and those barriers first, before you start beating them over the head with resources. (laughs)
0: You're going to alienate the person that way. Yeah. uh, It's been probably 10, 15, no longer than that. I think I was 18 and got pressured into doing some anger management. And yeah, I was definitely against the idea of it initially. And it it took probably six months or a year before I finally caved in on, on the suggestion, but
1: (laughs) You did need a, I don't
0: know what you're talking about (laughs) now for someone that's starting to look and, you know, search for a therapist, is there anything they should look for or look out for when they're perusing the, the interweb?
2: The first thing is credentials. And so you can verify the clinician's credentials by going to their respective state board. And we actually had somebody get busted here in Watertown for pretending or impersonating a psychotherapist. And they even opened up an office. So making sure first... Line of defense here is that the person that you're seeing is that person trustworthy. Have they actually earned the credentials that they say that they have? And there are lots of things that you can Google, for example, lists of what you should ask your therapist to see if they're a good fit. And I think that there are a lot of ways to determine fit just by having a conversation with that individual. What type of therapies do they offer? How would they work with your type of struggle? A lot of times people come in, one of their primary questions is how long is this going to take? If you have a clinician that is telling you, oh, you only need four sessions after a 10 minute free consultation call, you should probably not go to that individual because Rome was not built in a day. And a lot of things that you're struggling with, that that's such a reduction of you as a person and the things that you're bringing to the table.
0: So then, how do I? How am I supposed to know what type of therapy would work best for me? If I again, I well, I, I don't know anything outside of. Mm-hmm. I just did a, a group and some individual anger management classes, you know. But yeah, as you mentioned, the you other know, there's several different types that you offer. How does mm-hmm. you know? Do you come in and can kind of break down? Here's what we offer. This is what I think works best for you.
2: Yeah. So a lot of times people will call us and they'll say, I want this type of therapy, but it's really best to leave that up to the clinician. It's You don't have to worry about having to know everything about the therapy world and the different types of therapies, unless you're coming in for a referral from a doctor who's saying, you need EMDR, you need this specifically, but you should really leave that up to the clinician to determine what type of therapy you, well, let me say this, it's a collaborative work environment. So when you're creating that first treatment plan, that should be done collaboratively with yourself and the clinician. And there, we're gonna go over your treatment goals, your diagnoses, and then possible interventions and what those interventions might look like. And that's your opportunity to say, I don't really wanna do that or I'd like to do more of this, et cetera.
0: And you mentioned, you know, know, number of sessions. Is it, so I've gone to chiropractor for too many years insurance company will say, we will clear you for 12 sessions. Is it the same in your field? I mean, will insurance company say, yep, we'll pay for 10 sessions, 12 sessions, whatever the case is.
2: It, it absolutely is. And it's a really unfortunate aspect of being in a healthcare profession. And if you're going to take insurances as a clinician, that sometimes they try to dictate the treatment process. So for example, employee assistance programs might only pay for four sessions. So then you have to use a sliding scale or a different type of insurance to pick up the rest. So yeah, there's insurances definitely try to dictate what you can and cannot do.
0: I mean, If you say, if I come to you and you say, well, you should probably plan on 16, we'll say, but insurance has only got over 12. I mean, can I be, you know, air quotes cured in this though, that short amount of time, or should I plan on coming back for more?
2: You know, that's such a loaded question. Can people be cured? (laughs) First of all, what is your operant definition of cured? What does that look like? We would want to explore that too. So discharge planning actually begins at the intake, that first encounter, what that would look like. How will you know that you accomplished your treatment goals? How are they going to be measured and evidence-based? And so when people come in and they say, can you tell me, is this going to take, especially for restoration cases with intrafamilial sexual abuse? How, many, how long is this going to take? That's coming from a deep place of pain because these people are coming in and they're injured and they think that this, whatever this is that they're working with is going to last forever because you get that tunnel vision when you're in that amount of pain. So I think the most compassionate thing is to say, we're going to lean on you as the client, as the expert, but it's going to take as long as it takes.
0: And for me, so I did a, is either a 12 or 16 week program, but there's an open invite to come back if you, Pass through the class, you know. If you ever need a tune-up, you know, if it's just like a car going down the road it needs mm-hmm. its oil changes. I mean, is that an option when you're putting together a treatment plan?
2: Yeah, you not can, necessarily I mean, free, but yeah, you you can definitely do that if you want. Treatment plans can be very multidimensional and very holistic in nature. So it just depends on the client need and what they're bringing to the table.
0: And I know it, going back to the insurance. Some other, you know, there I've seen a few even MDs, you know, private practices and chiropractors that do the cash plans. Are do other therapy businesses do that or do you do that at Serenity?
2: We absolutely do. And we also like to offer pro bono services too. So we like to create a structure where people who are low income or have been hit really hard with COVID, that they're able to come in under the sliding scale, which is income-based, independent on how much the individual makes per month or per year and how many people are in their household.
0: And so how does, how should, you know, again, Steve and I are both looking for a therapist and we, that's the boat we're falling in. How do we start that conversation?
2: So the first call would be a a consultation on services that are needed and then how much they would cost. And then you would have that, are, that payment arrangement sent out to you in a contract called a financial agreement. There's lots of different consent forms that are gonna be sent out for you to sign. And then you would have the intake evaluation, which is also called a biopsychosocial assessment to see what it is that you're bringing in, what's the presenting concern, what's the history behind it, et cetera. And then you will proceed to have individual therapy whatever modality you need.
0: And in some more listener questions. Uh, somebody asked, what happens when you see one of your clients in public? I mean, are you allowed to converse outside the office? You know, like high school, you see your teacher down at the grocery <laughs> store, like, oh my God, yeah. what are you doing? <laughs> <Avoiding>.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, avoid them. yeah, yeah. So that's a conversation that I have with clients at the very first session at the intake evaluation, or if I'm seeing them, somebody else did the intake, I'm seeing them the, for that first session what do you want me to do when I see you out in public? Because I live in a small community and it happens. You see clients out in public. I've heard therapists say that they went on vacation, you know, up to Door County and they ran into a client. So it's just, it happens. You need to have that conversation. So typically I will say, I will pretend like I don't know you, especially if I'm with somebody or I will let you approach me because sometimes clients can become injured. It just depends on their personality. Sometimes they can become injured if you just ignore them and pretend like they didn't exist.
0: <laughs> and of course, uh, when someone starts seeing you, um, you know, being a veteran's podcast, can they talk to you if they, or can they tell you if they did something illegal, such as self-medicating, for example, whether, well, all calls of course legal, but there's harder stuff out there available. Is that, mm-hmm. can they disclose that with you or are you, Obligated to go and report that to the authorities.
2: Yeah. So we do, therapists are mandated reporters, but hang on just a second. (laughs) We tell our clients that if they're hurting themselves, somebody is hurting them or they're going to hurt somebody else. Those are the reasons that we would make a mandated report. So if somebody is struggling with drugs, illicit substances, we would have a conversation first because I would really want to know. What is causing you to reach out to this? When did this start? And how can we make sure that you're getting the right treatment? I might not be the right person. You might need to see an IOTA specialist for that. And so I would probably make a referral before, before anything.
0: Can you refer someone to, to um, rehab from there?
2: Absolutely. So obviously it just depends on what it is that we're working with here, but it could mean that you need to go, like you said, to a a higher level of care.
0: And, and on that same note, you know, if, if I'm already talking to you, or maybe we're near the end of my treatment, but something happens to me, such as sexual assault or maybe domestic abuse, Mm -hmm. uh, again, are you required to, you know, a lot of, you know, uh, many people are not inclined to call the authorities, especially in domestic Mm -hmm. abuse, hear that story all the time. Yeah, Can you report that and call the police or whoever it may be, or is it still dependent on the, on your client to go do that?
2: Yeah, this is is such a sad situation. I've actually called to try to make reports for clients to this, to the uh, local county and the counties are telling me unless they're, handicapped um, or intellectually delayed or they're elderly, um, that if they're fully functioning and they could advocate for themselves, they need to make that call. Um, So like adult protective services type of situation, but especially for people under the age of 18, we will make that report immediately.
0: And I had somebody else asking, can you get somebody out of work or school or jury duty due to a, whether it's physical or mental condition?
2: So do they mean just to come to an appointment or permanent excusal? (laughs) (laughs) We'll go both. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, we write excusal letters. Like if a kid had a session, we'll write a note to their school and fax it over with the signed release of information, consent form and everything, but that's not a permanent condition. So as an LPC, I cannot determine disability, but I will help you fill out whatever paperwork you need and I'll provide the diagnostics and all whatever you need, but I do not determine disability. Sure. And I definitely can't tell the courts not to <laughs> let you do a jury duty. Sorry.
0: <laughs> so if, what happens if I'm seeing a therapist and they leave for another company, maybe they get fired because they were having a fake practice or <laughs> the profession altogether? And can I yeah. this transition to someone new or do I have to go back to square one?
2: So the, first of all, the work that you made and you progressed in all of your progress, you don't lose that. Nobody can take that away from you to, regardless of the situation. But each one of those situations that you said are require a totally different uh, avenue. But if a therapist leaves for another agency, you're free to work with them. So sometimes agencies will say, no, you can't take any clients with you. Um, It's actually dependent on the client. The client is the expert in themselves. You can't tell the clients where they should and should not go. So if the therapist dies, obviously you want to go to another therapist and continue your treatment goals. And then if the therapist was fired because of, say, some sort of unethical reason, then you should probably follow up and get some help for that because that might be entering into the realm of sanctuary abuse at that point. Who knows?
0: And if I get to the point, you know, maybe I'm set for let's say 10, 10 sessions, but at number six, you know, I say, Oh, I don't need therapy more. I'm good. Can you sign off on that? Or do you need to you know, continue to work with them despite their, their own personal feelings of being, you know, they think that they're cured, you know, again, air quotes.
2: Yeah. And again, I like to take the stance that the client is the expert in themselves. So if they're at the point where they're like, you know, I think I'm good. I've met my treatment goals and you can communicate to me how you have met your treatment goals and you're satisfied with treatment, or you say, I don't want to work with you anymore, Nina. Can you refer me out? I'd be like, yeah, totally. You, You have that freedom to work with whoever you want, but I'm not going to push back unless I see clinically there's some sort of danger down the road. And we would have that conversation.
0: And of course we've talked about on, on the earlier episode, you know, if I talk to somebody, it makes me look weak, you know, being a veteran yourself. Mm -hmm. Did you see a lot of that when you're serving and do you come up against it now in your practice?
2: Absolutely. It's very prevalent in the military and a lot of that has to do with that war mindset that you absolutely must have to adopt in order to survive and progress through training. And we don't have to get into that too much, but in the civilian realm and in my own private practice, people still encounter that. And I think that it's more prevalent in the male populations who would rather see a coach than they would a therapist. That's just what we've encountered, but you two gentlemen can speak on that. I'm sure.
0: (laughs) I'm not bullheaded at all. And more than happy (laughs) to talk to anybody. And. And of course, yeah, I've heard a mixed bag of reviews on the VA, depending on Mm -hmm. who you talk to. It was the best experience or it could be their worst experience. Do you, as a veteran, you had the, you had the benefit package of going to the VA, but Mm -hmm. can they use that to go see someone outside of uh, government you know, outside of the VA for your practice, for example?
2: The VA would not like to do that. You can probably use your insurance, for example, if you have a significant other that you're under TRICARE, TRICARE can send you out to a a private practice agency that's credentialed with TRICARE. But as far as the VA is concerned, they would like people to use the VA unless there's some sort of specialty that you need, then you can be put on the care choice program for, and they can make that referral out to somebody in the community.
0: And so if they, have you gotten referrals yourself or is that, do you have to go and file the paperwork with VA to become partnered or, um, or uh, I can't think of the word now.
2: Yeah. Yeah. um, We are still in the initial phases of attempting that credentialing is a very long process that can take between four and 10 months and sometimes longer, especially if you're dealing with any governmental agencies. Um, So what we do though is, we get vets that call us and say that they weren't able to get in at the VA or that the VA was not helpful. Like I have the survey here, <laughs> it's showing me mixed results too. Like you just said, Gordon, but we offer them pro bono services a lot of the time, depending on their situation.
0: And from there, I mean, do you find more vets are willing to talk to you because you're a veteran than yourself? Hmm. Because you know, a lot of guys, yeah. you know, especially combat vets are, tend to clam up and not want to talk about it at all, unless it's, you know, someone within their own circle. I mean, how do you get somebody to start to unpack a little bit of that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And for the combat vets that come in, especially if they're male, it's always a little bit awkward. I mean, just being honest, it's awkward for them at first. Um, and so I, just like anybody who's coming in with any apprehensions about treatment, we work on rapport building first. And so rapport building with that community is just, listening to their military career. They usually like to relay that. And I'm able to speak into that in a more um, intuitive level, having gone through some of the military myself.
0: And the big the big uh, uh, hurdle, I, I've, again, I've heard on other shows and, and interviews is that the big holdback is that uh, I can't, I'm a military vet, but I can't go talk to a therapist because they wouldn't understand what it's like. I mean, how do you, how do you, work through that.
2: Right. And I think that on the surface, that is a statement that has a lot that's going on underneath. For example, I would, I might want to ask that individual who is saying that issuing that statement, do you require this of your doctors? For example, if you go see a heart surgeon, do they have to have gone through heart surgery themselves?
0: (laughs) (laughs) And so at this point, you know, if uh, again, if um, somebody's on the fence of uh, seeing a therapist themselves, I mean, is there just a, a quick way that they can go and do their own little research or maybe just, again, skin the surface of what they might be getting into?
2: Absolutely. And I think that you would have to be careful with Google. So making sure that the sources that you're accessing are reputable, but the fact that you're even questioning that at all means that you probably should go.
0: And should I, can I just go on, you know, Google reviews and look for the first five, you know, first five or six places that have a five star rating? Or is there, is there a a Yelp for therapists out there, if you will?
2: Uh, I mean, obviously there are Google reviews, but keep in mind, people might get mad at therapists because we weren't willing to do something unethical or perhaps somebody who has a very serious mental condition or psychiatric disorder is leaving a negative review speaking from that perspective. So you can't really trust Google reviews one way or the other. And I would say that the first thing that you should do is call the clinician and see and try it out for yourself. Sometimes you do have to shop around. Not everybody is going to be a good fit for each other. Sure.
0: Well, and any advice for if there's anybody listening out there that maybe they're about to start seeing a therapist or they're thinking about it that you'd give to them?
2: Well, first of all, congratulations on even reaching that level where you're questioning this. It's so hard to reach out for help, especially if you've been functioning for so long and you've been fighting this for so long. So congratulations on reaching this point where you're even thinking about talking to somebody. And so my first, I guess avenue of advice would be to do your research, go on to Google, call these places. And a lot of people are desperate right now just for anything that is open because of where we're at with everything. So don't act out of desperation, take your time and do what is best for you. You're the expert.
0: And for on the other side of the table, if somebody's looking to go into the into the career field, what advice would you offer for them?
2: Right. I would just like they ask any new potential therapist or somebody going into the mental health professions, why are you going in? How are you going to really evaluate your motivations? Because that can be a defining moment for somebody who is a good therapist or a bad therapist. What are your motivations? And you always have to check your motivations every step of the way. And then two, right now the field has a, a very big shortage of psychiatrists. So if anybody out there is interested in becoming a psychiatrist, please, please do.
0: Nina, thank you again for taking the time to be on the show this week. And Steve, any closing questions or thoughts? I,
1: I will actually ask a uh a third question, I guess, off of that. Is there is there a way to get involved um in a way like like volunteer work? Um, say for someone like me that kind of wants to, to give back to the veteran community Is there a way to get involved without um, needing to go through all the the requisite uh, schooling to become a fully licensed psychiatrist? Is Is there a way to help out, I guess?
2: Oh, absolutely. There are many nonprofit organizations that you can find that are in need of a lot of help and direct assistance. A lot of peer mentors for fellow veterans, I think is a really great first step because they might be more comfortable talking to you first and then you can be that first line of defense.
0: Yep. And Nina, if there's anybody listening that's local to your area, where where can they find you?
2: We are located at 300 North 3rd Street in Watertown, so Central Watertown, near Breslow's and the police station. But if you are somewhere else, we can conduct virtual sessions as well.
0: And on social media, do you have any presence online?
2: We do. We have a Facebook page and then we also have our website, which is serenitytherapyclinic.com.
0: Perfect. Well, thank you again. And thank you for everyone for tuning in this week. We will catch you next time. Nina, thanks again for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. You taking the time out of your day to join me and Steve over Zoom. And thank you for everyone for taking the time to tune in this week. Many of you have asked, how can you help out the show? First off, please drop a review and comment wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts, such as Apple Podcasts, Audible, and Spotify. Secondly, click the link in the episode notes. There you'll find a link to a tip jar just for a dollar. A month is all I ask. You can also head over to patreon.com slash rules of the arena and become a patron today. And the podcast store is currently in the process of moving, and I'll have it back up hopefully by the end of April. And don't worry, we do have a limited release coming, coming in collaboration with J.E. Collins Photography and Co- Cohen Ho- Hamill Hammons- Swing. Excuse me. Uh, you might remember him from episode 49 of Rules of the Arena uh, that's going to be coming out this July. Now, if you want to keep in touch with up, upcoming live recordings of both shows, future guests, and limited merch releases, like and follow the show on Facebook and Instagram. You can find both at No Story Left Behind. And don't forget to check out my other show called Rules of the Arena. It's available on its own feed wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And if you have any comments, questions, show ideas, or would like to be a guest on either show, shoot me an email, gordon at com. And most importantly, if you are a veteran in crisis or are concerned about someone, connect with a veteran crisis line to reach a caring, qualified responder with the Department of Veteran Affairs. Many of them are veterans of them themselves. You can call one 800 273 eight two five five or text eight three eight two five five to speak with a caring qualified VA responder available twenty four seven. And if you'd like to talk to with myself, Josh or Steve, you're more than welcome to again just shoot me an email and we will help out any way we can.